0: Countrywide on ABC Radio.
1: Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will.
0: We've seen the
2: whole agricultural
3: community come out.
1: Once people leave communities, they don't they generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't
3: worry about me, go and speak to your farmers.
1: We're already losing businesses. Get out there. and speak to your farmers if you
3: jump
2: for
4: Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
5: Hello and welcome to another episode of Countrywide. I'm your host, Tina Quinn, coming to you from Pi Country, Port Macquarie. Coming up this week to commemorate International Women's Day, we'll be hearing from a number of fantastic females who are making ripples across the agribusiness sector.
6: I don't know of any other female-led and operated distillery in Australia, or definitely not for rum. So that presents obviously an opportunity, but it is really challenging.
5: As the monsoon continues up in northwest Queensland, supplies are being sent thousands of kilometres by air, ship and road to service remote communities left devastated by the continuing deluge.
3: Since Christmas, we've now had 1.5 metres of rain. Numbers you can't um, get your mind around.
5: That was the mayor of the Berkshire in the Gulf of Carpentaria. More from him later. But first we want to put the spotlight on women across Australia who this week celebrated International Women's Day. Some are working in some remarkable jobs, including a few that are field technicians working with farm machinery. Jamie Ireland, Emma Holmberg and Ebony Wilkins all work for John Deere and reporter Laura Williams sat down with them to find out what the job entails. Jamie, let's start off with you.
4: How did you get into the industry of being a field technician?
7: Um, Well, I actually started doing a certificate three in aviation maintenance, but my circumstances changed where I was living and I wasn't able to continue doing that. So I had to look for something else that I could continue that mechanics working in. I did a couple of work experiences with some ag mechanics that specialise, yeah, working, going out in fields and working on the tractors and in the field, and then they mentioned that Emmetts were looking for an apprentice. Um, so I applied there, and yeah, got the job, and just been working there ever since.
4: So. It does seem like almost a niche career. I know when I was in high school, it wasn't really something that was, I suppose, marketed towards me. Was it thrown to you as a oh, would you consider entering this, or did you have to seek it out on your own?
8: Uh, I know that I sort of had to like seek it out because when we we're in school, a lot of the stuff that we sort of were looking at was all more uni. There wasn't so much, you know, this is an apprenticeship that's available. It was all what uni course do you want to do? Like apprenticeships, I don't think they're actually pushed enough during school because I didn't even really consider it an option until later on.
4: And what about you, Emma?
8: Um, I was in the Navy for six years as marine
2: tech and I did the same thing. I applied for uni. Um, I didn't want to go to uni and got into uni and knew I was going in the navy so I went to the navy and that was a tech role yeah I didn't come out with a trade so I really wanted to get my trade and and that's basically how I got the job
4: so is being interested in agriculture a prerequisite for the job I kind of assumed it starts off as you love ag and you go from there looking for a job but it sounds like you all found it in in different kind of ways
7: yeah I think having an interest in ag it helps a lot in the role just having um, some kind of background in it but me myself like I haven't didn't grow up on a farm or anything so I I just sort of fell in it and it seems like the other girls are sort of in the same same position. I actually grew up on a farm
2: for yeah my whole life so that's how I decided I wanted to do it. What are the best parts of the job?
8: I think like getting to go and meet the farmers and you know having talks with them about you know what they think is the best equipment or the worst equipment you know what advantages and disadvantages all the different machines have it's like quite interesting to listen to them and you know hear their opinions.
4: On the flip side to that what are some of I suppose the challenges that maybe you didn't anticipate when you entered the field?
2: I think one of my biggest challenges was being not as strong as the boys you know lifting things and cracking bolts all that sort of thing. I've obviously found some kind of advantage like mechanically and overcome that but that's definitely been one of the biggest struggles I've had for me
7: being out in the field when I roll up on a farm uh, and I meet meet the farmer for the first time if I haven't done any work for him before and he doesn't know me just that initial introduction like they're not used to having females out there as much so then they're not sure whether they can trust you straight away some have said that to my face you know or made comments like oh you coming on your own? you bringing someone, you know, that knows what they're doing or sort of thing? So there's a lot of trying to overcome that stereotype that, you know, females can do it too.
4: How does it feel to prove them wrong?
7: Oh, it's a great feeling. Like, they definitely change their whole view on it afterwards. They think it's great work. And some of them, after that, when you prove them wrong, they ask for me to come back next time instead of anyone else. So that's a great feeling.
4: Yeah, I bet. And just on that this week is International Women's Day. It feels like panels like these where it's all women and it's the question I suppose you're expected to ask is, what's it like to be a woman in the field? It's so male dominated. Is that a question we still need to ask?
7: I think there's definitely still work to do, but there are a lot more females coming into the game, which is awesome to see because, you know, the more we get and the more girls that are good at the job and can prove that we can do it just as well as the boys you know it gives us a good name to start with
8: I think um, a lot of farmers are like very keen for females like I've had a lot of encounters where you know they're like oh my god it's like there's a female this is amazing you know she's going to be so good and you have like this instant high standard which is like great it's so entertaining to see you know them being all supportive and it's almost like they take you under their wing. They're like, you know, you're going to be good. You don't, you know, you don't have to question it. You know, they're really supportive.
2: Um, I'm the same. I've had like positive experiences with farmers. A lot of them possibly go a bit far over the top when they see a girl come on the site, they're just constantly like, this is so good that there's a female um, apprentice and I just think females can bring a lot to the job. They're so much more articulate, um, but then they just go over the top and it makes it kind of awkward as well.
4: And just circling back to your actual job, your role is a mechanic and an auto electrician in one because technology in this space keeps updating and it's your role to be able to be a jack or a jill of many trades in terms of being able to fix so many things. That technology, it's designed to make it easier and more efficient for the user. What's it like to be at the back end of that, fixing that? Has it made your job harder or easier?
7: Yeah, I think um, everything is advancing it does make our job a bit harder because there's a lot more that we're going to have to learn and become better diagnostic technicians. It's not just a simple, you know, mechanical fault that so you can sort of find a lot easier, but it's going to be a lot more um, on the computers. Plus, everything's going to be going autonomous um, in the near future, which is going to bring another another challenge for us. But I love learning, so it's going to be exciting at the same time. Yeah, it's sort of,
8: it's very interesting to see like all the different technologies that there is like at the moment. And, you know, there's so much stuff that we just, we don't even know about yet. That's, you know, whispering the wind, you know, like, could this even be an option? And, you know, we've, we've already come so far like, in, if you look at like the last 20 years, we have auto steer, we have, you know, sea and spray. We have so many of these different programs and all their uses And, like, you know,
5: this is just the start of it. Laura Williams speaking with Jamie Ireland, Emma Holmberg and Ebony Wilkins. Well, a major ag conference was held in Canberra last week. The Abares conference is a pretty dry affair usually, with bureaucrats talking about production numbers as well as beef, grain, wool and everything in between. And it's a time that big companies make some major announcements, including one from the Consolidated Pastoral Company, CEO Troy Setter says the agribusiness has got some carbon and methane emissions baseline data, which it'll apply to its holdings in Australia and Indonesia. Troy told our reporter Alice Marshall that it's a critical first step towards being carbon neutral.
0: We've been um, in the carbon reduction space since about 2014 because it's a really good thing to do and also there's some, um, some good value creation opportunities for us. We've just finished the first draft of our um, carbon emissions and methane emissions baseline work. Um, there's still more work to do, but we're getting close to uh, having a really objective baseline so then we can work even harder at reducing our emissions.
9: So that's your emissions across all of your country in Australia and Indonesia as well, or just Australia-based?
0: No, definitely Australia and Indonesia, and everything we do, everything we bring onto the properties and everything we produce and the way that we run them.
9: So that baseline data has just come this week, is that right?
0: Yeah, we've just got it this week and uh, there's some checks and and balances to do on there. There's multiple ways to to calculate things and we're just reviewing through that now and then the the heavy lifting gets going on what are the ways to uh, further reduce our emissions.
9: And you say you sort of started this whole process back in 2014. There's been a couple of methodology changes when it comes to measuring carbon emissions since 2014. Have these methodology changes been a hindrance to you in your process
0: yeah they 're not helpful, but if they improve accuracy, then we we need to to deal with that i think one of the opportunities is for longer-dated methodologies with a clean energy regulator that are, that are really long-dated, particularly for ones around livestock. So the beef cattle herd methodology, we'd like to see that effectively have a in-perpetuity type approach to it so that, that producers can invest in uh, infrastructure, technology and, just, and knowledge creation so that we can, on an ongoing basis, continue to reduce emissions and to, and to be rewarded for holding them down.
9: Yeah, because you were you provided a fair bit of consultation with the most recent methodology. When's that due to run out?
0: Um, I'm not exactly sure. It's due to run out in the next couple of years, um, and we we definitely want it extended. But we also want it to, to effectively last in perpetuity so that there is actually a methodology there for keeping uh, emissions uh, as low as possible.
9: When it comes to the beef industry's aim for net zero by 2030, do these changing methodologies sort of make that challenge a bit harder?
0: Um, I think there's potential there for it. It, it really just depends on, on how they're going to land. But if it improves accuracy and allows us to uh, to get on with, with focusing objectively on emissions reduction, I don't think that's a bad thing.
5: Consolidated Pastoral Company CEO Troy Setter, he was speaking there with Alice Marshall. Shortly we'll hear again from Alice about an emerging corporate acronym that could change the way Australians farm. That's next on Countrywide.
4: You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world, on ABC Radio.
5: Well, ESG is a term becoming more and more familiar with Australian producers working in the agribusiness sector. The corporate acronym stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, and it could be set to change the way that our country farms. But what does it actually mean? ESG encases
9: three major areas. Environment, covering factors like soil health and emissions. Social, covering areas like responsible sourcing and employee engagement. And Governance, covering food and work safety. It's a small acronym that encompasses some pretty lofty topics. Combank's National Director of Agribusiness, Carmel Onions, says more than anything, ESG is a disruption.
0: It's uh, almost like a business disruption. It's a lot of change, changing expectations for farmers around... How they produce and how they sell and how they tell their stories. So it's a lot of change for farmers to deal with.
9: KPMG's leader of corporate ESG strategy, Robert Poole, described the concept as a set of guidelines governing how businesses look after the environment and their people.
1: I kind of define it as the big three that would be emissions reduction. Uh, circularity, so how you can recycle things and stop them going into landfill, and then ethical sourcing, so buying it from reputational sources that look after their people and look after the environment themselves, and then how all of that's governed and decisions are made.
9: The problem, however, is that ESG guidelines have no national or global set of standards and are instead open to interpretation by individual businesses. As of December 2022, All New Zealand farmers are required to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions and must have a written plan in place to manage these emissions by December 2024. Here's Robert Poole again.
1: Baselining is probably almost certainly necessary. I can't see any future where we won't have a similar know your number kind of strategy in Australia, and that will be a base level reporting. And we've been working on these nutrient calculators, mass balance calculators for a long, long time in agriculture so that the the universities and the sectors are starting to build those up. So it's now a matter of just getting those in use Getting that adopted through the sector, and agri- I'm confident farmers' ag will be more than capable of um, delivering some of that baseline. I think it's a been a, a tradition in agriculture that's building in terms of monitoring what happens on farm more and more. And as technology started to be more introduced to farms, so everything from the mobile phone through to sensors and satellite data, um, we definitely have to build up that that data bank in the most easy, cost-effective way to report up the supply chain. There's absolutely no doubt we'll have to do that. And as I say, that'll come through through emissions reporting, it'll come through waste management, river health, animal welfare. I think they're all known to us that those issues needed to continue to be improved and reported. But as Carmel says, that's now coming as a more important measure, whether it's because of market access into, say, Europe, whether it's compliance regulatory related or whether it's one of our customers like a retailer saying we need to move with you down this path.
9: So how could an adoption of ESG guidelines within Australian agribusiness impact your bottom line? Here's market analyst and founder of Episode 3, Matt Dalgleish.
10: If the farmers get able to demonstrate they're fulfilling certain ESG criteria, that they will be able to continue to have access to some of those key export markets that we use. So, But I think you know, as an on-farm level perspective, I feel that it's going to be more a matter of maintaining that kind of important access to all those diverse markets rather than attaching an actual premium for doing or at least satisfying the, these ESG hurdles.
9: Yeah, so you think it'll become, I guess, a a box-checking exercise to stay in the same markets that you've potentially already been trading into.
10: Yep, that's right, yeah. And the, and then by default, I guess that if you aren't able, as, a, as an individual farm, able to demonstrate you know particular criteria that, that satisfies the end client, then you could lose access and, and then that could then follow with a price discount rather than, you know, so you kind of, I guess, by default you're getting less. So, you know, those that are involved aren't necessarily going to get a premium but you might be, you know, reducing your opportunities um, if you're not able to demonstrate the criteria that's required. Um, I guess the, something that, that focus. Uh, you know, we were looking at something like the EU where we're still negotiating through a free trade, agreement, attempting to get a free trade agreement through there. But, you know, the EU are, are pushing ahead with this um, Green Diplomacy or Green Agenda. I think it's by 2035. Um, that they're going to have some significant changes and if countries that are trading into that marketplace are not fulfilling the standards that they that they want for their own internal um, producers, that, then you'll get forms of like tariff or barriers to trade to get into those markets.
9: But for Fiona Conroy, who runs cattle and merino sheep on Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula, the concept of ESG is still too new to fully comprehend.
5: You know, we've seen these issues come and it's like millsing in sheep. They start off as a bit of a chatter and then... They become mainstream, and then there's market signals, and then those market signals are, you know, the norm. And I just think, you know, we're hearing that, but I think at this stage, it's, it's still that light and distance. Everyone's talking about it. People don't quite know how to get it all together. And I just think we just need to have really good information coming from credible sources. Fiona Conroy, a sheep and cattle farmer on Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula, ending that report from Alice Marshall. We turn now to the continuing floods in northwest Queensland, where they've seen record-breaking rainfall. Supplies are being sent thousands of kilometres by airship and road to service remote communities in the Gulf of Carpentaria, which have been isolated by floodwater for the last three months. Mayor of the Berkshire, Ernie Camp, says the area is experiencing its biggest wet season in about a decade.
3: Certainly, difficult times for the residents in in the Gulf, and also now concerns with the stock within the region as well.
11: And how many people is that that you're needing to evacuate?
3: This time, it will be uh, three in this evacuation. There may be more later on. In total, we've probably uh, evacuated a dozen. But a lot of other properties have self-evacuated, so there would have been, you know, uh, uh, know, from properties up to uh, uh, two dozen people there uh, self-evacuated using uh, various modes, mainly robbers and helicopters. Century mine in the last uh, less than 48 hours have had uh, uh, 522 mil over just over half a metre rain. And at Florival, since Christmas, we've now had... 1.5 metres of rain, just numbers you can't get your mind around.
11: And obviously this is one of the biggest wet seasons your region has seen for a really long time, but I think for people outside the area, what is a a normal wet season like comparatively?
3: Certainly uh, for the length of time, that we've been isolated and having these heavy rainfalls haven't been experienced except for maybe a couple of years in the early 70s. So uh, it's been quite uh, variable, the uh, rainfall, but nowhere near that uh, what what we're experiencing today.
11: Now, there's been a huge logistical effort to get fuel and supplies into these cut-off communities. Is it getting through OK?
3: Again, with some difficulties with fuel. Uh, a lucky in Birktown itself, We've got a uh, reasonable stock there, as long as it doesn't go on for another couple of months, which uh, I don't believe it will, but anything possible as we show now with some of those records um, breaking there. Uh, the likes of uh, Normanton, of course, again, difficult. And, of course, the uh, community of down donated inside the Berkshire. And the concerns there is for emergency fuels.
11: And I guess just in general, obviously this is incredibly stressful situation and, and people are being evacuated. But just generally, how are people in the region faring? Are they going OK?
3: Oh, people are going OK. I suppose um, you call it some of them are historic. We've got certain people that um, have lost um, everything at a um, local roadhouse and being affected with the assets in Birktown. Um, but they've um, contacted council the other day and offered to help in any way they can. Uh, when I sent an email back thanking for the offer, and the comment come back, we've just got to keep busy. And I totally understand that. You can't dwell on those disasters that happen. happened. You've got to keep busy. But we will need support in recovery. We had the um, 2019 event, followed by COVID, and this event on top of it. Yeah, I think the people's resilience is worn out.
5: Mayor of the Berkshire, Ernie Camp, speaking with ABC Rural reporter Megan Hughes. Well, administrators for Scott's Refrigerated Logistics say they've not been able to find a buyer for the business. Scott's is a national freight company with a proud history which counts supermarket giants like Coles and Aldi among its clients. It entered voluntary administration in the first week of March, but a buyer could not be found, so the business will be wound up. Scott Langdon, partner from
12: Quartermentha, explains. The business is in such a financial state that absent some support financially from outside the business that it's likely to go into an uncontrolled wind down albeit you know the management team and our team are doing everything possible to minimise the damage to to customers and to ensure we can still pick up the produce and also get it onto the shelf.
6: So not being able to find a buyer and going into an uncontrolled wind down what does that mean for Scott's employees?
12: it's it's tragic and you know that for the employees you speak to the employees and see how proud they are of their business there's a lot of employees who have been there for such a long time and if we had some more financial assistance we could see the business close in a in a very dignified way in a in a way that has harm minimization to employees and customers but um ultimately um, the business will be wound up and and the employees will not be employees of Scott's going forward And uh, we are doing what we can to try and find uh, new opportunities for employees.
6: Could you expect or ask for something like government assistance
12: here? Uh, We haven't received any assistance from government um, through this wind down. We've been in positive dialogue with them and they've been very open uh, with us and very respectful of the situation. But no money has come through from the federal government. We have asked a number of times for financial support, but uh, that has not been forthcoming yet. We've been asking of financial support from customers who have been um, willing to pitch in, but um it's a challenging situation for a lot of stakeholders.
6: In terms of the customers as well, you, you mentioned those areas and I'd imagine a lot of farming communities and food producing communities where they're expecting deliveries like Far North Queensland, Sunraysia and, and Riverina among those other areas you were saying. What about the people they deliver to supermarkets among those? Are they going to find it difficult to get these deliveries if Scotts winds up this quickly?
12: Based on my engagement with the management team, we think that um, especially the smaller to medium-sized um, retailers will feel the impacts of it. Absolutely, especially in those regional towns that I mentioned earlier. I really do empathise for all of the people who are involved for the situation. It's, it's, uh, the uncertainty is, is very, very challenging.
5: That was Scott Langdon from Kortomantha speaking there to Warwick Long. Well, since it was International Women's Day this week, it's only right that we end on this story. The Northern Rivers of New South Wales has fast become a destination and home for craft breweries and distilleries. Among the beer and gin is now a handful of rum makers, including Australia's only solo female-operated rum distillery, Caparita Spirits. It's in the Tweed Valley. Kerry Algar shared with Kim Honan how she came from discovering local rum on tropical islands to buying a pot to distill her own, using sugarcane grown in the farmland around her home at Cabarita Beach.
6: At the end of 2020s, when I launched it, and I had the idea in earlier in 2019. I was just looking for a bit of a change of career and taking a bit more control over my destiny and a destiny that wasn't going to have me desk-bound and office-bound. That's what I was looking for. So I had the idea to make rum and that probably came from you know, the prior decade when I used to work as a dive instructor. And I travelled along these tropical islands and always imagined I might even end up in a rum bar somewhere one day. <laughs> Perhaps with a little bucket with snorkeling gear for guests and they could snorkel, come back and have a pina colada and it sounded lovely. However, I worked as a, actually came as a journalist in, in public relations for a while and by 2019 I was yeah I needed a change. So that's probably why the idea of rum came to my mind. But instead of the rum bar, I was really enjoying living in the Tweed and in Cabarita Beach. And I knew that there was sugar cane all around where we lived, and there was the kondong, sugar mill, and the woolen bar. So I thought that maybe I could make rum, and so I did. And are you producing the type of rum that you love drinking? <laughs> yes. Rum's is a really fun drink. And actually, interestingly, craft rum is so different from industrial rums. It's, it's actually more different than I ever realised and I'm still learning. Um, what I'm producing at the moment on the market are both classified as cane spirits because they've been in a barrel for less than two years. So they're not legally rum. And I have barrel age spirits ageing to be able to release a rum, if not later this year than um, at the start of next year. But I'm, I'm really, well, actually I'm really enjoying the art of cocktail making and, well, cocktail drinking, I guess, suppose, as well. It's more involved and complicated than I ever realised was possible. And I see it as something like, almost like a foodie revolution as well, where there's so much scope to try really un- unique and different flavours and combinations. Mm. And so what sort of um, product are you getting from the cane meal, molasses and sugar cane? I use predominantly molasses from the condong sugar mill and also raw sugar for my fermentations. And I use a commercial strain yeast and it's a fairly traditional method then of fermentation and then a double distillation through a copper pot still that I had manufactured in Western Australia. So it's, it's a small scale operation and I mostly service local bars and restaurants between Byron Bay and Brisbane a few in, other interstate ones as well. And the distillery sector in the Northern Rivers is certainly growing. There's a a couple of rum producers now. Where do you fit into the the whole scheme of things? Are you you the only female distiller? I'm the only solo operating female distiller, yes. You know, there's a couple of um, husband and wife operations out there. Um, But I don't know of any other female, only female-led and operated distillery in Australia. or Definitely not for rum. So that presents, obviously, an opportunity because there's in the business there's not so much, I guess, compromise with decisions that are being made. Um, But it is really challenging. I mean, I've come from a background of communications and dive instruction, and distillation is a science um, as well as an art. So I've had to learn a lot about um, the chemistry involved, the physics as well. And the engineering of how things are put together and pumps and fixtures and fittings and connections. And and it's I'm still learning, you know. I feel like I, I've done a fair amount of education and training on this journey, but there's still a lot to go. It's an, it's an ongoing process. And I think with that as well comes a continuing improvement with my products as well. And just in those first two years, I've managed to release two products. And I guess it's a real testament to those products. They've both been winning awards, which for me is actually really reassuring as well. And have you been tapping into the local or Australian knowledge of the other rum distillers out there? Yeah, it's an excellent industry to be in. It's a really small industry and everyone's incredibly supportive of each other. And a lot of people are in the same boat. They've changed careers recently. They've started something new. They're not all chemical engineers, you know. And so um, I do lean on the industry around me. The local distillers as well at Winding Road and at Husk. Lord Byron. um, They're all incredibly helpful. So I I do lean on those guys.
5: Kerry Algar from Cabarita Spirits in the New South Wales Tweed Valley. She was speaking there with Kim Honan. And that's it for Countrywide this week. I'm Tina Quinn. And if you're listening on digital radio, you can also find this program as a podcast to listen to later on. Just search for Countrywide on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week on Countrywide.
8: This week on Landline, fighting spray drift in the cotton industry.
6: Up until December, hadn't received many complaints about spray drift damage, but they're coming in thick and fast now. And
5: the power of leaky weirs.
0: We've been able to slow the water down, spread the water out, enable it to soak more effectively into the the floodplain itself.
8: That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
1: ABC Listen. Uh, So tell me, what's the question that people ask the most on the Dr. Carl podcast?
0: Everything in the entire universe, from haematology to biology to geology. Was there really a big bang? What happens when I have dark urine in the toilet? And finally, why is the sky blue?
7: But mainly just farts.
0: Lots of farts.
7: Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app.